Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we reach back deep into the archive for a lecture by Carol Phillips from Portland Arts and Lectures in 1999. It's an unusual and fascinating talk about the tragic life of singer and songwriter Marvin Gaye. Carol Phillips was born on the Caribbean island of St. Kitts in 1958 and was raised in Leeds, England. His career began in the 1980s in British theater and quickly established him as a new and exciting voice. His first novel, The Final Passage, published in 1985, was a breakout success and revealed a writer who would forge a long career, writing for the stage and the page, for the radio and for the screen. He also became a celebrated teacher and editor. He joined Portland Arts and Lectures at a moment when his career was gaining wider recognition, and he was playing a greater international role advocating for writers, including giving the keynote speech at the Penn International Congress in 1998 in Stockholm, Sweden. In this talk, Philip takes on the life of Marvin Gaye as his subject, including how racism shaped Gaye's life and musical career, his troubled relationship to masculinity and sexuality, and his sense of identity on both sides of the Atlantic. It's a tragic life, ultimately, and Philip explores it unflinchingly with a clear sense of how our history is global and also deeply personal. I should note that many of the subjects discussed in this talk may not be suitable for all listeners. Here's Carol Phillips from Portland Arts and Lectures in 1999. Imagine the scene. We're in late 18th century and attending a slave auction in Charleston or Barbados or New Orleans. One by one, the captives are ushered onto the auction block. They are prodded, inspected, examined for venereal taint, and then the bidding opens the most prized specimens are, of course, the young males who are able to perform one vital task beyond the physical drudgery which will blight all of these African lives. Young males can be used as studs and therefore produce new slaves for free. Black males remain the only migrant group in the American world whose ability to perform sexually was deeply wedded to their social standing. To the white American plantocracy, the more priapic, virile, and sexually robust the man, the greater his value. Sadly, soon after their arrival, this is how black men began to think about themselves. The writings of James Baldwin, Richard Wright, and Ralph Ellison 
for the subject of a special study during my last year as a student at Oxford. I was standing on the verge of graduating into a Britain that was being torn apart by race riots. Yet there was no discourse about race in British society, and certainly no black writers. Inevitably, I looked to the United States and to the black writers who had taken their place in the larger literary tradition here. As my research progressed, I discovered that a great number of these black American writers and artists, including Baldwin and Wright, had left the United States and chosen to live in what they considered to be the racially liberating climate of Europe. Why, I wondered. Was it really just racial prejudice that they were running from? And more importantly, what was it that they imagined that they were running to? You see, as a young man, a young black man, who had grown up in Britain, I was aware of the realities which underpinned this so-called European freedom. But it wasn't just the British, of course. I had been refused hotel rooms in France and in Spain. I had been abused in Norway, threatened in Germany, spat at in Finland. And this was the freer Europe that these black Americans wished to exile themselves to. It made little sense to me, of course, but I continued to immerse myself in the work of black Americans for their ability to analyze the racism and injustice which stained the American world was helpful in my attempts to understand both British and European racism. Beyond the writers, the artists that I admired the most were the musicians, particularly Stevie Wonder, Curtis Mayfield, and perhaps most importantly of all, Marvin Gaye. In June 1981, I saw Marvin Gaye perform at London's Apollo Theatre. But it was a disturbing performance which made me wonder about the direction that Marvin Gaye's career was taking. For here was a Motown artist whose finest recordings suggested to me both a hard political edge and a great personal sensitivity. But here in London, he seemed content to strut about the stage and present himself as little more than Mr. Sex Machine. If one could imagine the stage of London's Apollo Theatre to be an American auction block, then this Marvin Gaye would have fetched top dollar. It made little sense to me that such a complex artist should have settled for the demeaning role of throwing sweat-stained handkerchiefs at screaming women. But I also didn't understand why such a man was currently living in, of all places, Belgium. Marvin Pence Gay Jr. was born at Freedman's Hospital, Washington, D.C., on April the 2nd, 1939. He was the second child and the first son. Soon after, there would be another sister and a brother, Frankie. But the atmosphere in the Gay household was always strained. Gay Sr. was a strict father who drilled his children on the Bible and who kept Sabbath on a Saturday. 
Never formally ordained, Reverend Gay was regarded in the neighborhood as an uncompromising man of God. In his own house, he was a man to be feared, and he would not flinch from inflicting harsh physical punishment. As Marvin Gaye told his biographer, David Ritz, in 1982, by the time I was 12, there wasn't an inch of my body that hadn't been bruised and severely beaten by him. Living with my father was something like living with a king, a very peculiar, changeable, cruel, and all-powerful king. You were supposed to tiptoe around his moods. You were supposed to do anything to win his favor. But I, of course, never did. Even though winning his love was the ultimate goal of my childhood, I defied him. In fact, I hated his attitude. By the mid-1950s, Reverend Gay had become disenchanted with his Pentecostal church. Another member of his congregation had been named Chief Apostle over Gay, and this bruised his ego. For the greater part of Marvin's childhood, his father had been a spiritually possessed, Bible-fearing patriarch. But by the time Marvin reached his teens, his now unemployed father seemed to have lost his purpose in life. The tension between Marvin and his increasingly embittered father was exacerbated by the fact that as Marvin was growing into adolescence, not only did his father's life suddenly appear to have become directionless, Gay was now openly exposing another side of his character, a side of his character that had in fact been inadequately disguised for much of Marvin's childhood. Marvin Gay Sr. was an openly effeminate man, both in terms of his manner and his clothing. This, of course, caused Marvin to be the target of relentless teasing about his sissy father. In 1982, he told David Ritz, My father likes to wear women's clothing. As you well know, that doesn't mean he's homosexual. In fact, my father was always known as a ladies' man. He simply likes to dress up. What he does in private, I really don't know, nor do I care to know. Shortly before her death in 1986, Ritz asked Alberta Gay if her husband was homosexual. She replied, I'm not certain. I do know that five of his siblings were homosexual. And it's true that he liked soft clothing. Soft things of all kinds attracted him. He liked to wear my panties, my shoes, my gowns, even my nylon hose. And young Marvin would see him like that sometimes. As a young boy, Marvin used to sing in his father's church. But at 15, he stopped singing at the altar and began to sing sinful, secular music. After a brief spell in the United States Air Force, Marvin moved to Detroit, partly to escape his father, who disapproved of his singing devilish music, and partly to become involved with the emerging Motown scene. Marvin began as a session drummer and played on early hits by Smokey Robinson. But in 1962, he recorded two songs, Stubborn Kind of Fella and Hitchhike, both of which entered the charts. Marvin Gaye's career as a singer with Motown had been launched, but Marvin Gaye was not happy. Marvin Gaye disliked dancing. A failure 
which regularly brought him into conflict with the head of Motown Records, Barry Gordy. Motown, you see, was built upon the notion of hot rhythm and blues that would cross over from black to white audiences, all of whom would be swept up in color-free gyration. Marvin Gaye, however, wanted to be a balladeer. He wanted to combine Perry Como's relaxed presentation with Billie Holiday's pain. And he declared his intent from the very beginning of his career. His first album, The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye, featured ballads that Marvin felt could express the deepest secrets of his soul. However, Barry Gordy was not interested in the slightest in such music. And even if he had been interested, he couldn't provide the polished musical arrangements and the elaborate strings that might have transformed Marvin's tracks into the Perry Como sound that Marvin craved for. When this debut album failed, Marvin was encouraged by Gordy to concentrate on the hip-shaking, sexy rhythm and blues songs, which eventually resulted in his brace of hits. In 1965, however, Marvin Gaye returned to love ballads with two albums, a tribute to the great Nat King Cole and Hello Broadway, both of which failed commercially because Motown was still not equipped to produce such music. Furthermore, the public did not associate a Motown artist with the polished, understated elegance that Marvin Gaye was trying to project. What they wanted was hot, sweating sexuality. But Marvin Gaye was determined that he should be allowed to wear a tuxedo, sit on a stool, and sing love songs. Towards the end of the turbulent 60s, Marvin sought to convince Barry Gordy that he should be allowed to produce his own concept album. But Gordy had a formula that worked and a highly valuable commodity to protect in Marvin Gaye. However, after a long standoff between these two supremely stubborn men, Marvin got his way, and in 1971, he released What's Going On. It was an immediate success, and unusually for a popular record, Time magazine accorded it a large review, describing it in glowing terms as a vast, melodically deft, symphonic pop suite. The album examines themes as diverse as the ecology, racism, inner-city violence, and drugs. But despite its artistic and its commercial success, Barry Gordy was still not happy with Marvin Gaye recording such albums. However, he need not have worried, for Marvin Gaye's next album, Let's Get It On, was a suite of songs about the pleasures and the dangers of loveless sex which both pleased his fans and satisfied Barry Gordy. The album that followed, I Want You, was even more graphic in content and little more than a fully-fledged celebration of sexual carnality. Clearly, Marvin Gaye had come a long way from the early days when he was reluctant to dance and keen not to play up to the stereotype of the sexually charged black man. In performance, Marvin Gaye was now projecting himself as an all-night-long lover and thrusting his pelvis with the best of them. As he confessed to his biographer, David Ritz, I saw that pleasing women 
meant pleasing your bank account. Sex and money and music were all tied up together. I thought I was cool. I thought I could handle anything, but oh, man, I didn't know what I was in for. He was an insecure man, a man who had lost his virginity to a prostitute whilst in the Air Force, and had therefore, thereafter, continued to make extensive use of prostitutes. However, he rarely had sex with them, preferring to talk to them about sex, or make them parade naked in front of him. He was a great connoisseur of pornography. He feared intimacy, disliked kissing, and viewed women as dangerous. For a man whose religious upbringing encouraged him to regard sex as an extremely powerful force, it was reckless, to say the least, of Marvin Gaye to submit to a vision of himself as a sexual ringmaster. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. In the late 70s, Marvin's troubled personal life began to seriously disrupt his work. His first marriage to Anna Gordy, a woman 17 years his senior and the sister of Barry Gordy, was over. In October 1977, he finally married his girlfriend, Janice Hunter, who was 17 years his junior, and she had already borne him two children. But by 1979, this marriage to Janice was effectively ended and there existed much hostility between Marvin Gaye and both his ex-wives. A 1978 album, Here, My Dear, yet another concept album, this one based upon his failed marriages, had been a commercial and a critical failure. There was no doubt that his artistic reputation was now waning. But meanwhile, a serious drug habit was beginning to grow out of control. He was running from the IRS and a horde of other debtors. And finally, in late 1979, Marvin Gaye fled the United States, the mainland United States, for Hawaii. He was a 40-year-old bankrupt. Between late 1979 and the early summer of 1980, Marvin Gaye lived an eccentric life in Hawaii. For much of the time he slept in a bread van, existed on bananas and pineapples, and at one point he tried to kill himself by ingesting more than an ounce of pure cocaine in less than an hour. He wrote letters to friends on the mainland asking for help, which they duly offered in the form of cash and occasional visits. He hoped for some kind of reconciliation with Janice, but when she eventually turned up in Hawaii, they quarreled so badly that Marvin held a knife to her heart and by his own admission came very close to killing her. He feared a return to Los Angeles, for his affairs were in the hands of his receivers. His studio had been closed up and he now owed well over a million dollars in taxes. However, life in Hawaii was becoming increasingly poverty-stricken, and Marvin Gaye knew that the simplest way out of this mess would be for him to tour abroad and to make some money. Having learned of Marvin Gaye's situation, the British promoter Jeffrey Kruger arranged a tour of Britain in the hope that Marvin might begin now to address his financial problems and gain some kind of perspective on his life at home in the United States. However, the British tour was a drab affair. Few venues sold out and the concerts themselves were unsatisfactory. Marvin doing little more than pace about the stage 
and encourage the women in the audience to come get to this. Professionally, he was facing a serious crisis. Motown had already invested well over a million dollars in the recording of a new album. But Marvin Gaye was reluctant to return to the studio and to complete this project. He had absolutely no concept in mind, and the working title of this album, Love Man, only pointed to the heart of this problem. Marvin Gaye found himself trapped by the all-night-long lover image that was now sadly synonymous with his success. And although he resented its crassness, he had absolutely no idea of how to move beyond it. Eventually, a frustrated Barry Gordy made the decision to simply use what material Motown had. He instructed his engineers in Los Angeles to do a final mix, and he released the album under the title In Our Lifetime. Alone in London, heavily indulging in drugs and prostitutes, Marvin Gaye was outraged. The music was incomplete, and at least one of the tracks was little more than a guide track, which is a musical equivalent of a writer's first jottings. After 20 years as a central player for Tamla Motown, Marvin Gaye vowed he would never ever record for them again. And of course, being the stubborn man he was, he remained true to his word. That, if you like, is the history. At this point, having discerned this much about Marvin Gaye's life, I decided to try and follow his life from the middle of 1980, the summer of 1980, when he really was reasonably close to death, living in London as a vagrant, as a drug addict, nowhere to live most of the time, to 1984 when he finally died in Los Angeles. The first step um, was for me to go to Belgium and to find the man who actually rescued Marvin Gaye that summer of 1980 um, and spring of 1981, a man called Freddy Cousart, a Belgian music promoter, who in many ways saved Marvin Gaye's life, or at least prolonged it by four years. In September 1980, the Belgian music promoter, Freddy Cousart, found himself in Britain on one of his many business trips. A fellow promoter informed him that having finished the Jeffrey Kruger tour, a disturbed Marvin Gaye was now living in London and would soon be performing in a small West End club. He asked if Freddie Cousart would like to meet Marvin, and naturally Cousart was thrilled. And then two days later, Cousart met a stoned Marvin Gaye in an unkempt apartment in London's Knightsbridge. Cousart tentatively suggested a European tour, and to his surprise, his great surprise, Marvin Gaye appeared interested. As Cousart remembers it, Marvin tried to talk a little about capacities and about merchandising, and to make it sound like he knew what was going on. But he didn't. He had no idea. He had no idea of where he was. In the end, we simply exchanged addresses and talked about basketball. Eventually, Cousart sent Marvin Gaye a formal proposal for a concert tour, and a few weeks later, an anxious Marvin called Belgium. Cousart told me, Marvin asked me for an advance. I sent him a check to London without any security, even though I knew he was wasting his time there. He told me that he had just been to Brighton on the English coast with his Dutch girlfriend, Eugene. 
he told me that he liked wind and he liked rain. So I told him he should come over here to Belgium. We had plenty. And Marvin said he'd come after Christmas for a few weeks. In fact, he planned to come in February 1981. So my wife and I got an apartment ready for the first week. But we didn't hear from him. So I called London and found that he'd changed apartments. He was no longer living in the apartment in Knightsbridge. It turned out he'd moved into a hostel near Marble Arch. Cousart tracked Marvin Gaye down and spoke to him on the telephone. Marvin assured a somewhat irritated Cousart that he was packed and ready to leave for Belgium whenever Cousart arrived, so he departed immediately. However, when he arrived in London, he was appalled by what he found. The flat was awful. There were about five hangers-on in the bedroom, and Marvin was high from snorting coke. I pointed to the car, and I told Marvin I'd borrowed this car, and I have to have it back in Belgium by tomorrow. If you're not ready at eight in the morning, forget it. The next morning, Marvin, his Dutch girlfriend, and his five-year-old son were the only ones left in the apartment. Marvin did have, had no idea where he was at all, and the folks at reception were watching every move because they suspected that he had no money to pay the bill. Cousart paid the bill, and in February 1981 he drove Marvin Gaye out of London and in the direction of Ostend, Belgium. Ostend is a windswept, somewhat lonely outpost of 80,000 people on the North Sea coast of Belgium. Shortly after Marvin's arrival in Ostend, Freddy Cousart arranged for a half-hour documentary to be shot on location. The film is called, appropriately enough, Transit Ostend. In one scene, Marvin Gaye enters a working-class bar that is full of Belgian workers, enjoying a beer at the end of the day. They look quizzically at this American black man, and they ask him if he's from Paraguay. Marvin confesses to being a singer from Los Angeles, and they laugh at him. Then Marvin Gaye attempts to play darts. He's not very good, and again they laugh at him. In another scene, Marvin Gaye, resplendent in red and white tracksuit, first jogs along the beach and then works out in a gym. As he does so, he announces that his next fight is going to be with his wife. Fifteen rounds for all the property, but he looks confused and he looks worried. The Marvin Gaye of Transit Ostend is a man at a crossroads in his life. He has entered unfamiliar territory in terms of language, in terms of race, in terms of culture. But he is attempting to maintain good grace and some manners. Here in Belgium, Marvin Gaye is neither a star, nor is he even an American. He has no viable role to play, not even the role of black American sex symbol that he considers so demeaning. The deep creases of worry on his forehead suggest that he knows exactly what he is in Belgium. He is, of course, simply a black man. Between February 1981 and October 1982, the Cousart family welcomed Marvin Gaye into their world. Freddie Cousart arranged for Marvin to live with his girlfriend and his five-year-old son in a tiny fifth-floor apartment overlooking the North Sea. In early 1981, Larkin Arnold, 
then a senior vice president of CBS Records, flew from Los Angeles to Belgium in the hope that he might sign Marvin Gaye to his label. These days, Larkin Arnold still maintains some relationship to the music business, although he's primarily a Beverly Hills lawyer and businessman. When I mentioned to him his visit in Marvin Gaye in Belgium, he arched his eyebrows and leaned back into his chair. I found him as positive as one could be in that desolate city, but I was surprised, for he was in a cold, small, one-bedroom apartment overlooking the sea, not much bigger than my office. A couch, a bed, and a synthesizer was all there were. He seemed glad to see me, though, another black man in town, and we talked because there wasn't anything else to do in Ostend. But I was appalled at his situation. Soon after Arnold's departure, a deal was struck which necessitated the delivery of an album by the summer of 1982. Arnold, together with Marvin Gaye's lawyer, set about paying off Tamla Motown, approximately $2 million. Establishing a reasonable payment schedule with the IRS and arranging for the IRS's criminal charges against Marvin Gaye to be dropped. In his capacity as Marvin Gaye's business partner, Cousart received Marvin's advance on the album. He then negotiated a further $25,000, which was spent on musical equipment. Cousart attempted then to encourage Marvin Gaye to forget his latest idea of a money-spinning tour and to begin work on his album. But Marvin remained stubborn. Cousart knew, however, without a new album, Marvin Gaye's career was effectively over. Cousart's relationship with Marvin deteriorated further in July 1982, when Marvin's visa problems necessitated his leave in Belgium for three months. A hurt Cousart was not invited to accompany Marvin, although Marvin didn't have a driving license and took Cousart's car. Between July and September 1982, Marvin Gaye moved erratically between France, Switzerland, and Munich, Germany, where in, 19, where in August he eventually finished recording his most unashamedly commercial album, which he now entitled Midnight Love. Meanwhile, back in Belgium, financial problems were mounting around Marvin's affairs, and Cousart knew that he would have to track Marvin down. He did so. And in late September, he arranged to meet Marvin in Geneva, Switzerland, where after an unpleasant encounter in which Marvin, wrongly, as it turned out, accused Cousart of embezzling his money, Marvin provided Cousart with the necessary signatures which both released Marvin's advance and effectively terminated their business relationship. Shortly thereafter, Midnight Love was released. Marvin Gaye's album notes do not acknowledge Freddie Cousart or any member of his family. In fact, after their frosty meeting in Switzerland, Cousart never saw or heard from Marvin Gaye again. Marvin Gaye's last hit single from the album, the aptly named Sexual Healing, was written in Ostend with the basic rhythm track laid down by Odell Brown and a title suggested by Marvin Gaye's biographer, David Ritz. Back in Los Angeles, I sat with Ritz, who rocked 
back and forth in his chair as he spoke to me. Shortly before Marvin's death, Ritz had sued Marvin and CBS in order to establish that he held part of the copyright of the song, Sexual Healing. On the album, Ritz had received no songwriting credit, but Ritz claims that one night in Ostend, having seen all the sadomasochistic pornographic material that was littered around Marvin's tiny apartment, he told Marvin Gaye that what he needed was sexual healing. Thereafter, Ritz claimed that they penned the song together. Ritz's suit was settled out of court, and Ritz is now listed as the co-writer of the song, along with Marvin Gaye. Marvin's attitude towards sex veered wildly between the puritanical and the pornographic a fact that is easily discerned from listening to his music. For instance, on the album Let's Get It On, it features, there features an exquisite song to the purity of love and longing entitled If I Should Die Tonight. But a few tracks later, there is the unmistakable coarseness of a song entitled You Sure Love to Ball. When I asked about Marvin's own sexuality, Ritz was candid. Marvin had performance anxiety, premature ejaculation and impotence. He also liked to wear little frilly things, blouses and so on. And he did so with guilt and with confusion. He never said, I cross-dress, but he'd say, I like to wear frilly things from time to time and get wild. It didn't surprise me, said Ritz, because he was intrigued with his father. Ritz then pointed to a passage in a book by Tony Turner, entitled Deliver Us from Temptation. Turner is a former dresser for The Temptations and Diana Ross, and Ritz explained that the book had been published before he wrote his own biography of Marvin Gaye, but he could have, and he would have, if the book had been published earlier, expanded upon Turner's observations, for he felt Turner got Marvin right, and the passage has all the earmarks of truth. Tony Turner met Marvin Gaye in that dark period in the summer of 1980 in London, shortly before Freddy Cousart took Marvin to Belgium. Turner remembers the singer asking him to make him a wig. Quote, he liked the experience of a woman's wig on his head, all rolled up. But he didn't want it styled on a wig head. He wanted me to roll it on him, like he was in a beauty shop, and this was his own hair. Some days I would do two or three styles for him. Then he would get himself dressed up. Marvin had found a nice selection of clothes over there in the cross-dressing shops. He had the cross-dress undergarments and everything. He wasn't that interested in makeup. What he really liked were the bras, the corsets, the garter belts, and the negligees that he would wear around the apartment with nothing else on top, just a wig on his head with the rollers in it like any old housewife. Later, when Marvin's father shot him dead in 1984 and the whole story of their troubled relationship came out, I discovered that the Reverend Gay was, of course, also into wigs too. A great deal of Marvin Gaye's time in London 
and in Belgium was spent exploring the personal nature of his relationship to masculinity and slowly coming to terms with the fact that should he choose to abandon the burdensome role of sex god then his professional life was probably over. His fear of being unable to perform adequately both on stage and in bed was temporarily alleviated by his continued use of prostitutes for the purposes of voyeurism and domination. Their willingness to adopt a submissive role boosted Marvin's fragile sense of himself as a real man. However, what Marvin Gaye really needed was not so much sexual healing as some kind of personal and professional armistice which might free him from what he perceived to be his obligation to be the baddest buck on the block. But a man who has largely made his name and his fortune by encouraging women to get it on cannot expect to suddenly sing Fly Me to the Moon and be taken seriously. Marvin Gaye fully understood that the ability to be a real man in a sexual sense is a key element of being a black male in the United States. But he regarded this, quite rightly, as crass. At the same time, Marvin Gaye did not want to be like his father. In Marvin's eyes, his cross-dressing, effeminate father had, had failed as a man and had caused him untold shame and humiliation. Beyond his use of prostitutes, and his own cross-dressing experiments, the only forum available to Marvin Gaye to work out these problems was in his music. Marvin was struggling, struggling badly, to banish his problems with irony, but he was genuinely frightened and retreating further into a world of sexual experimentation and drugs. In October 1982, his visa problems now resolved, Marvin Gaye traveled to Holland from Paris. CBS records in the person of Larkin Arnold were trying hard now to persuade Marvin Gaye to return to the United States in order that he might do promotional work for the Midnight Love album, and eventually, of course, tour. Despite his insecure yearnings for the fame and the fortune that only the United States could provide, Marvin Gaye remained deeply ambivalent about a return home. In Europe, he could continue to play at being the artist, and also avoid the personal and the professional problems that he had spent the past three years running from. Then one night, Marvin Gaye received a phone call informing him that his mother had been taken seriously ill with kidney problems and subsequently hospitalized. A reluctant Marvin, knew that he would now have no choice but to leave Europe, leave Belgium, and return to Los Angeles. Marvin's best friend, Dave Simmons, remembers picking Marvin up at Los Angeles airport and taking him straight to the medical center to see his mother, who was by this stage in intensive care. Simmons severely chastised Marvin for leaving his mother in the care of his father, who had clearly done nothing for her. In fact, when Marvin arrived, 
His father was not even in Los Angeles, he was in fact in Washington, D.C. His father's negligence angered Marvin, but familial problems aside, Marvin's professional life was now suddenly in the ascendance. Sexual healing was a huge international hit, but after three years of exile, Marvin was finding it difficult to cope with the pressures of renewed media attention in the United States. He began freebasing, as opposed to simply snorting coke. And inevitably, his physical and his mental health began to suffer greatly. The situation, of course, was not helped by the embarrassing and semi-pornographic promotional video for sexual healing. In January 1983, Marvin Gaye Sr. returned to Los Angeles from Washington, and he moved back into his bedroom in the Gramercy Place house that Marvin had been sharing with his mother. The unbearable tension in the family home compounded by excessive drug use and serious financial problems continued to wreak a terrible toll on Marvin. In April 1983, Marvin Gaye set out on a five-month-long national tour, but by this stage he was a mere shadow of the man who had arrived back from Europe. Most people thought that he would never complete the sexual healing tour, but Marvin, as stubborn as ever, was determined to prove his detractors wrong. The tour, however, featured a dramatic and sad illustration of Marvin's continued confusion about the disparity between his image as a potent sexual god and the reality of his sexual inadequacy. At one point in the show, Marvin Gaye would drop his pants and clad only in briefs, his waistline bulging, his head hung low, he would pose somewhat pathetically before his audience. It was clear that this sad, disturbed man had finally submitted to the power of the stereotype. The tour ended in August 1983, and Marvin Gaye returned to Los Angeles where he moved into a friend's apartment. The tour had been a financial as well as an artistic disaster. And because Marvin had been ignoring his new schedule of payments to the IRS, he was now indebted to the agency to the tune of nearly $4 million. In November 1983, he moved back into the family house and isolated himself in a bedroom where he took to long, solitary bouts of freebasing cocaine and reading the Bible. His mother occupied the bedroom next to Marvin, and beyond her was Reverend Gay's bedroom, where he spent much of his time drinking vodka. According to Marvin Gay's mother, on the morning of Sunday, April the 1st, she and Marvin were upstairs talking in her son's bedroom. They heard an angry shout from downstairs, but the words were indistinct. However, both mother and son knew that it was 70-year-old Marvin Gaye Sr., who was frustrated for he couldn't find some letters pertaining to an insurance policy. Marvin shouted to his father that he should behave in a more civil manner and come upstairs if he had something to say. And moments later, Gay appeared at the door and began to berate his wife. An angry Marvin raised his voice and told his father to leave the room. You can't speak to my mother in that way. When his father refused to leave the bedroom, Marvin pushed him out into the corridor where the argument continued until Alberta Gay intervened. Marvin then returned to his bedroom and, comfort and comforted his agitated mother. 
Moments later, his father appeared at the door, this time armed with a 38mm revolver that Marvin had given to him some months earlier. He took aim, and from a distance of about six feet, he fired. A bullet tore into 44-year-old Marvin Gaye's heart, and he fell to the ground. Alberta Gaye began to scream as her husband took a few steps forward, lined up the pistol, and fired again. Then, without saying a word, he calmly turned around, walked downstairs where he threw the gun onto the front lawn, took a seat on the porch, and sat impassively and simply waited for the police to arrive. Marvin Gaye Sr. was a source of disappointment for his son, for he was not a man in the way that Marvin wished him and needed him to be. He was neither capable of nor interested in providing for his own family. Instead, he ruled the household by fear. He beat his wife. He abused his children. And he engendered confusion in the soul of Marvin Gaye by flaunting his ambivalent sexuality and continually attempting to undermine the confidence of his handsome and talented son. For much of his life, Marvin had tried to win the approval and the affection of this jealous, egotistical man, but Gay refused to show his son that he cared for him. As Marvin sank further into the world of drugs, he became obsessed with the idea, quite probably biblically inspired, of punishing his father for failing as a man and punishing himself for failing in his own eyes as an artist, as a lover, as a husband, and as a father. Marvin felt that the sins of one generation were being passed on to the next generation, and he could not bear this. When he looked at his father, what he saw was an addictive, sexually confused, emotionally unstable failure of a man. Marvin grew to loathe his father because so much of what he saw in his father eventually, of course, reminded him of himself. I asked Dave Simmons about the morning that Marvin was shot. He sighed deeply and he shook his head. You know, he said, Marvin knew what he was doing. He wanted to die, but he also wanted to punish his father. The shooting was his way of committing suicide, and what better way of doing it and putting it on his own father and making him live with it for the rest of his life. Marvin's eldest sister, Jean, is also convinced that her brother carefully provoked their father. Shortly after the funeral, she told David Ritz, this way, Marvin accomplished three things. He put himself out of his misery. He brought relief to our mother by finally getting rid of her husband and he punished father by making certain that for the rest of his life he would be miserable. I do believe that my brother was very crazed and disturbed but even at that point in his own way he knew just what he was doing. Larkin Arnold is also convinced that Marvin Gaye knew what he was doing but he is less sure that Marvin achieved his aim. He told me, Marvin must have planned the end 
But the waste, the tragedy, is that the father learned nothing from it. He's in a home now, and he still remains the meanest son of a bitch I've ever met. In 1984, a Los Angeles Herald Examiner reporter, Mitchell Fink, interviewed Gay Senior in jail where he was held awaiting trial. The reporter stared directly into Gay's eyes and he asked him if he loved his son. And an unblinking Gay replied, let's just say that I didn't dislike him. Dave Simmons remembers meeting a flamboyantly dressed Gay shortly after the murder. The charges after him had been reduced from first-degree murder to voluntary manslaughter, and Gay had been given a six-year suspended sentence and five years probation. After her son's murder, Alberta Gay began formal divorce proceedings, but while she moved out and went to live with her daughter, Jean, Gay moved right back into his room. Simmons recalls going to visit Alberta Gay and being somewhat taken aback to see Reverend Gay sitting by himself on a sofa, with nobody talking to him. What made the scene even more surreal, remembers Simmons, was the fact that there was a video on the television of Marvin singing. When Simmons was ready to leave, he offered Gay a ride home, and as fate was having, as they were driving along, one of Marvin's songs came on the radio, and it was then that Simmons remembers Gay turning towards him and asking him coldly, do you know who gets the money from these songs? I asked Simmons if Gay showed any remorse at this or at any other time. None, he said. None whatsoever. Simmons went on. You know the old biblical saying, I brought you into this world and I'll take you out. Well, that's pretty much how Reverend Gay felt. Imagine the scene. A small church in Ostend, Belgium, a disorientated Marvin Gaye walks into the church and looks around. There is nobody in sight. His mind drifts back to his childhood when he used to sing in his father's storefront church. And then Marvin begins to sing the Lord's Prayer. And he sings it like he has never done before. His glorious tenor echoing around the small Belgian church. When he finishes, his dull eyes stare into midair. The scene is from the film Transit Ostend. Marvin looks around himself. He is alone in Europe, in Belgium, a long way from home. It is far too late to sing gospel in order that he might please his father. It is too late to sing the ballads that he loves so much. It is too late to set aside the image of Marvin Gaye, lover man. Marvin understands that he must play the part that has been assigned to him, the part that he thought that he could pick up and put down at will. He made a terrible, if predictable, choice. But meanwhile, in a small church in Belgium, he remembers where it all began. He remembers the purity, if you like, of his origins as a singer. Thank you. In no particular order.
Could you discuss how your work has evolved from the final passage in 1985 through to the nature of blood in 1997? Um, quickly. Um, I don't know, it's a good question. Um, how did it evolve? Well, I think as long as you continue to live, as long as you continue to experience things, I think you filter them into your work. So um, when I first started to write, the things that I think I know now, I didn't know then. So I've tried to include them in the novel, which means that the form of the novel has changed. There's obviously, I hope, been some kind of technical improvement in my ability to tell a story but the evolution I think in some rather um, strange way and it's probably not for me to say it's probably for some academic or critic to say has probably followed the emotional uh, as well as the geographical contours of my life so my first novel like most people's work I think is loosely based without being slavishly autobiographical on what I knew as a 25 year old which I thought was pretty profound then. Um, but looking back, it's not that profound. So I, I think the evolution is to do with the evolution of life. I mean, I, it's very hard to divorce um, the things that happen to you from the things that you write. So I, I hope that's a satisfactory answer. Could you discuss the differences for you between writing fiction and composing a non-fiction talk like this one this evening? Um, well, in, in, in simple terms, I pref I, in many ways I prefer writing fiction to writing non-fiction because writing fiction I can hide behind the characters. I don't have to be visible. Um, and sometimes I feel uncomfortable. I feel increasingly uncomfortable, I think, as an author living in the late 20th century where the cult of the author, the visible author, the author who has to do promotional tours, the author who goes on Terry Gross, the author who has interviews with journalists, the author who has his or her photograph on the book. I, I sometimes yearn for a time when, in the 19th century, where the author not only did not have a photograph on the book jacket, the author could sometimes change his or her name um, and adopt a different persona. I, uh, because I like the I like the invisibility of being an author hiding behind the characters, but the um, I guess that the nature of the industry that I've chosen to be a part of um, means that one has to step forward these times. I mean, just even the the idea of doing readings at Powell's or at other bookstores is a late twentieth century development, um, a late twentieth century publishing development. So. I prefer the hiding. Non-fiction, oh, the sort of forest of personal pronouns, the I, the I, the I, uh, makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes. Um, this particular piece was very pleasurable to write because it was written about somebody who was dead. So it, it left some room for the imagination, a great deal of room for the imagination because I couldn't possibly interview the principal. Um, yet at the same time I did feel I had some connection with him because I saw him perform twice during that terrible period in the early 80s when he was living in London. I saw him twice in London. Um, so in a way I felt I could hide and I, I did have some room to invent.
um, certain things. So that's that one. Okay. All right. Um, the question here says, could you comment on how your life and experiences differs from, say, Hilton Alls for growing up in Britain instead of the U.S.? Um, I don't think it's... My life growing up in Britain seemed to me to be... Um, or rather, seems to me, the longer I live in the United States, um, seems to me to be... Uh, well, very different from the life that my students live. Very. My favorite subject as a, as a kid in Britain was history. Um, and I, I always thought I would go to university to study history and maybe become a historian of some sort. And I'm, I suppose in some ways the fiction that I write is connected with history and is concerned with that old saying, well, two sayings it's connected with, which is one is um, history is an interview with the winners. Um, and I'm sort of quite interested in listening to the losers. So uh, the other saying is um, the saying that is inscribed in, inside the main hall of the concentration camp Dachau. Um, the only thing that man learns from history is that man learns nothing from history. I sometimes worry when I'm talking to my students in New York um, that young American people don't have a particularly profound sense of history. Um, and we talk about this a lot and I ask them about the way they get their information from and what they believe and what they don't believe. Um, and if one accepts that perhaps that historical skepticism, that grappling with history is perhaps at the basis of a lot of what I do, then I think I did get that through growing up in Britain, through growing up in a society which um, I think has a, a very perverse sense of its own history. Britain's still reluctant, even as we lurch out of the 20th and into the 21st century, to give up the idea of herself as an imperial power. Um, which makes me feel somewhat uncomfortable because the imperial nature of Britain's history got me into the shit I'm in at the moment, you know? So that's my feeling about British history is that it was an oppositional history to me. I talk to my students sometimes about Vietnam. I talk to them about Oliver Stone. I talk to them about Watergate. And there doesn't seem to be as much grappling with history in American life, and maybe that's the, the main difference. And if you look at the last 10 or 15 years of the British novel, I think you see in um, fine British novelists as diverse as Kazuo Ishiguro or Graham Swift or Rose Tremaine or Beryl Bainbridge, you see a deep sense of the historical in, amongst contemporary British writers because um, it is a condition which has been opposed upon all of us by Britain's imperial history and in more recent years by Mrs. Thatcher, I guess, you know, who attempted to fan those imperial flames again. But a novel like The Remains of the Day is not about a butler. You know, it's, it's clearly not about a butler. It's, the novel is set in 1956, 
which is the year that Britain had its first seismic tremor with the Suez Crisis. And it's very deliberately about Britain's tenuous sense of our own history. So, that's that one. I can't... Uh, this one says, please give us a foreigner's view of race relations in the U.S. Um, and the changes you've seen here in this area since your college trip. That's a very large question. Uh, it's a very, it's a, it's a big question, but I mean, I, in a thumbnail, it's going to be an unsatisfactory answer because the question is profound. Um, my view of race relations in the U.S. is this: um, even after nearly ten years of living here, I still don't feel qualified to comment on it. Um, I live in New York, which is not the U.S. Uh, and we have a very strange man as a mayor called Giuliani who who has some very strange ideas of race relations but I, I, I honestly it's not a cop out I just don't feel qualified I mean I read the books that are published I, I follow with interest um, the, the president's traveling Oprah Winfrey show on race uh, a year or so ago. Um, I admire the work that's been done by people like John Hope Franklin, both in his writing and in his pronouncements. Um, but it's a minefield. It's a minefield for Americans. So as a foreigner, um, I don't particularly wish to step on a landmine. So I watch with interest and fascination and learn from it as well. It's a very long question. I'll leave that one to the end. Um, does one learn more about black culture by being in America rather than in Britain or anywhere else? Um, well, I'm not. I'm not been. Uh, I'm not ducking the question, but I don't. I'm not sure sometimes what black culture means. It's a very broad term, but. If it means if it means the culture of those people in the African diaspora, shall we say, um, which includes African Americans or would include Brazilians or people of the Caribbean, um, then I don't think so. I think you you learn you learn plenty wherever you are about all sorts of things. So I mean, I don't you learn different things. I mean, one of the things that I enjoy about teaching um, there are some things I don't enjoy about teaching, but one of the things I do enjoy is that it does afford one a, a terrific way of learning about a country and learning about a people um, by speaking and engaging with young people because they're going to be the next generation. Um, and obviously some of my students are black and some of my students are white and so I learn plenty from talking to them about issues of race all the time. And their take on race is very different from what mine was as a kid growing up in Britain. It's, it's complicated, it's rooted in um, it's rooted often in a, an actual head-to-head -head encounter it's very difficult and very unusual rather for me to come across a student who doesn't have an experience of something that one might call a racial encounter when I went to university in Britain there were plenty of people that uh, I went to university with who had never met anybody of a different race um, it's a different society it's not quite as openly um, heterogeneous a society 
out of many people, one, whatever the, sorry to misquote your national motto, but uh, in Britain, of course, you're dealing with a country which would have a seismic attack if you tried to tell them that they were, as Daniel Defoe did 350 years ago, a mongrel nation. But Britain is a mongrel nation, Britain is a society of immigrants, Britain is a heterogeneous nation, but Britain doesn't wish to recognize that. So a lot of the students, a lot of the people I grew up with, a lot of the people I studied with, um, in some ways are not perhaps as sophisticated about race or as experienced about race as, as my American students are. It's a long question. Um, in Crossing the River, you write about events that are rarely, if ever, explored in fiction. These are complex and interesting. Why are they not explored more? How did you learn about them? What other events have not been discussed or explored? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I don't know if... if I hope they, they are complex, and I hope they're interesting, but uh, um, the one aspect of that novel that I think is definitely not, people don't want to talk about, is maybe something that I'm revisiting now and trying to write about, which is um, the... I, well, I'll just explain to whoever asked this question, I'll just explain very briefly that the novel, which is about a father in Africa who sells his three children into slavery, came about for me out of visiting uh, Ghana for the first time some ten years ago and realizing, again, we talk about history, realizing that the history that teaches you that the slave trade, that the African slave trade was about a bunch of white guys arriving in Africa, rounding up some black people and putting them in a ship and sailing to the New World, was clearly fraudulent, was clearly a history that was based on a very short-sighted understanding, not only of human nature, but of basic economics. Um, there had to be collaboration. There had to be somebody selling these people to the Europeans. There had to be somebody who knew two languages, there had to be intermediaries, there had to be betrayals, there had to be familial fracture. Um, and when I raised this subject amongst the people I was spending time with in Ghana, they were horrified that I would um, wish to discuss something uh, as touchy as this, if you like. So it came out of that moment of encounter. The novel grew out of that rather uncomfortable moment when it seemed to me that, again, a historical truth which had been passed down to me at school, which was being peddled, for want of a rather clumsy term, but which was peddled in the wider discourse about the subject, it just seemed to me to be nonsensical. It just seemed to me obvious that there were betrayals and why not write about it? Why not write about an anguished father whose crops failed and the only way that he could limp through to the next year was to sell his own children? Because it happened um, and nobody's guilty and everybody suffered and that's just unfortunately the, the, um, 
the, the nature of our condition. It's a complex condition and it's one which doesn't um, often offer neat, neatly packaged, easily digestible solutions. So I guess out of that complex vortex of issues um, grows most people's fiction. You know, fiction is um, an act of inquiry born out of a period of doubt. Um, that was my doubt and that was my inquiry. And if it was that complex and interesting, it would have sold a damn sight more copies than it did. <laughs> but, well, is that it? I think that's it. Thank you very much. That's Carol Phillips from Portland Arts and Lectures in 1999. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project, a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for radio and podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson, Alberto Swem, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to Literary Arts Marketing Staff Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>